0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, July sixth, and we're getting sassy. I'm your host Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined on Skype by Fool.com's Brian Feroldi. Brian, what is up? How was your July fourth?
1: It was uh, fantastic. Very hot up here in Rhode Island, so we did our best to avoid the beaches because they were crowded. How uh, how was how was your fourth, Dylan?
0: It was also hot here in DC. It was also a particularly bad time for my AC to decide to stop working in my house because I had a bunch of people over to barbecue. But we made the best of it and hung out on the deck. All right, Brian, we are tackling a listener question today. Not one that was submitted to us necessarily, but one that was passed along from someone that I think a lot of IF listeners probably know. Here's the clip Rule Breaker Investing, mailbag
2: item number one. This one comes from Lewis Miller. David, I'm a longtime Fool from back in the 90s. All right. And regular RBI podcast listener, thank you, Lewis. In the last few years or so, as well as Tom and some of the other Fool services, you have recommended several Software as a Service, or SAS. I think a lot of people may know that acronym, even buzzword, if you will, these days. Companies. In my memory, Salesforce. CRM is the ticker symbol, and that's a Rule breaker recommendation for the last ten years or so was the first such business model when it went public in the early two thousands. But recently, there's been an explosion of SaaS companies. Lewis goes on. There's been platform as a service, data as a service, transportation as a service, AI as a service. I heard somebody the other day, by the way, talking about games as a service. If you think about something like World of Warcraft or what Grand Theft Auto has done in recent years, which is just keep sending you more content from your initial buy, you're still playing the game four years later with constantly new stuff. Games as a so X. As a service, a business model, says Lewis Miller, that is maybe here to stay. What they all seem to have in common two things the cloud and a subscription revenue source. I wonder if you could devote some time on a future RBI podcast to discussing, from an investing perspective, both the pros and the cons of the SaaS model, and how you differentiate among them in selecting which ones to recommend. Do you see SaaS as a market sector with many subsector winners, or a few giant winners taking all? Perhaps you could do a five-company sampler, etc. Thanks, David, for all you and Tom and The Motley Fool team do to educate, amuse and enrich Lewis Miller." Well, I thought about this for about a minute.
0: And then I thought, you know, I think there's a better podcast at the Motley Fool to really nail that. So Brian, I feel like Lewis knows a bit more about SaaS than he let on because he hits on a lot of the core tenets of SaaS in his question. To to kind of answer this, why don't we start with what software used to look like and kind of make our way to the present?
1: Sure. So, if you rewind the clock 15 or 20 years, the way that software was distributed to users was primarily at retail stores. So if you wanted a certain program, you would walk into, say, a Best Buy or a Radio Shack and you would pick it out off the, off the uh, shelf. You'd buy a physical CD-ROM and uh, you would purchase it. So that kind of model, if you will, was the user paid a one-time, large, upfront fee to have to essentially own that software and they would install it on their computer, and they would use it essentially as much as they wanted forever. And uh, the downside to doing this was that, one, it was pretty expensive up front, and uh, two, whenever updates came out to the software, uh, they had to be manually made. And whenever there was a major release of a software, the the customer would have to go back to the store and purchase a new version of it in order to keep up with the most recent date. And while this worked... Pretty good if you were just an individual at home with just one PC. The real big problem with this model was when it came to implementing it at a large company. Uh, you can imagine having to maintain 50 or 100 or even a thousand computers uh, like this. Just the physical process of installing the software on each of them would be a huge burden.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a headache for any tech department. Uh, thankfully, for folks that work in tech, in the late 90s, salesforce.com comes around and they kind of changed the way that enterprises interact with software.
1: Yeah, they, they were the first to push the idea of uh, what we now call cloud computing uh, to consumers. So, salesforce.com's revolution, resolution was they would take the software and instead of distributing it on CDs, they would actually host it in servers. And their idea was that users, would connect to this software just through the internet. So they would go on their browser, log into a website with a username and password, and they would have access to this software uh, through through the internet. And they call that through the cloud. So instead of selling the software up front, you're almost renting space, uh, renting time to use this software. And that's the idea that uh, mo- that model is called Software as a Service, or SAAS, SaaS.
0: And this delivery mechanism. Really removes a lot of the issues that we see with the old CD-ROM system, right? I mean, you are able to access software from anywhere. You are always working on an up-to-date version with this delivery mechanism. It seems to eliminate a lot of the friction that we'd see normally.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of benefits to the to the to the SaaS model. You touched on a couple of them, but um, if you again go back to the enterprise model, it's extremely easy to deploy this across fifty, a hundred, thousand users because all that you're doing is giving them a website, buying a username for them and time on it, and then everybody can just access this software instantaneously. Uh, It's also a lot lower cost up front um, for for the user. So instead of paying a large uh, bolus of money up front, you're just paying a low monthly or annual fee. Uh, A couple other benefits are that, um, depending on the software, some of these programs can be very intensive on your, your processing power. But when you host it in the cloud, all of that processing, the heavy lifting, is done by servers that are stored elsewhere. So you don't necessarily need to have the most up to date, latest version of a computer uh, to, to run some of these programs.
0: You mentioned the low upfront costs, and something that you will see a lot with SaaS providers is this idea of a virtuous cycle, right? So you start out small, and it's something that an individual entrepreneur can use. And as they grow their business, their use case grows with it. They add more licensed users. Maybe they build out the functionality. This is a benefit for consumers. It's also a great benefit for these businesses because they grow and they share in the successes of the people that are using their software.
1: That's absolutely correct. And th- there's a lot of benefits for consumers to switch to this model. But having said that, th- there are some downsides too. So. Adopting a SaaS model uh, is, can be a lot more costly in, in the long term. Uh, while you're paying smaller monthly fees, uh, those fees do add up over time to typically be a bigger number than the initial bolus uh, that you would pay up front for the old model when you were purchasing the software. Uh, you also need to always have an internet connection so that to, to, to access it. And the data that you're actually using at your company is also stored on a, a server that ex- resides in another company. and That can create some problems if you're working with like really sensitive information. But o- overall, the switch makes a lot of sense for consumers.
0: Alright, let's look at SaaS from an investing perspective here. because Lewis asked this question, and I think it's probably prompted by looking at uh, a decade-plus of returns from SaaS companies and realizing that this has been a great place for investors to park cash. Uh, I think one of the biggest benefits to these types of models is the fact that instead of having a one-time sale, you now have kind of predictable recurring subscription revenue.
1: Yeah, the markets love certainty, markets love predictability. So going from a single software sale that occurred, say every two or three years, turning that into a monthly, predictable, recurring revenue is highly attractive. Um, And there's other benefits for the for the companies too. So Back in the early 2000s, there was a lot of um, issues with piracy where people were taking software and trading it over the internet for free. When you convert to a SaaS model, it basically eliminates the piracy issue. And uh, software companies, when they were distributing them at retail stores, would also have to split the revenue with their retail partners. But if you're distributing it over the cloud, the company gets to keep all that money um, for itself. And uh, one of the things that you touched upon was what's known as the "Quote unquote land and expand model," and that's when the company, the SaaS company, essentially gets their foot in the door with a customer, and then upsells them with more licenses, more products, more ways to create revenue over time. And that's that's a very low risk way to to have growth from your existing uh, customer base.
0: Yeah, you'll see different SaaS models uh, kind of approaches differently. Some of them will price their a baseline product very cheaply so that you know entrepreneurs and very early stage startups can afford to use them some of them will go with the freemium model and say you know we're going to make ourselves available for free to individual users and the hope there is that they then kind of become evangelists at their company when it comes to making software decisions
1: yeah but both models definitely work
0: uh, one other thing that I think is really important for investors looking at the space and why it's so appealing is that these businesses tend to have very high margins so uh, you know just as a case in point we've talked about salesforce a couple of times they post gross margins of over seventy percent and and that just speaks to how profitable these types of businesses can be once you hit a critical mass of users
1: yeah gross margins tend to be b- very high for for these saAS companies now having said that. Some of these SaaS businesses employ a couple different models. Some of them have a service component to it where they're selling a subscription, but they're also having like, you know, where they're actually providing physical human services to it, which can be a lower margin business. Uh, Some of them sell subscriptions, but users can also pay one-time fees for access to higher value uh, services. And those can have different gross margins in them. But uh, so so when you're comparing SaaS companies, you can't just look at the gross margin. You have to understand how it's made. But to your point, the subscription portion of the, the SaaS business model does tend to be very high margin.
0: And another strength that we see with, with this model, too, um, is the idea that switching costs become high. Once you become kind of installed, and this is the case whether you're delivering it in the old school method of software or SaaS, but um, the switching costs are high because you train people to use a certain type of software and you build out service functionality as they become more and more comfortable with it. Uh, to retrain an entire group of employees to use something else, it's going to be disruptive for a business. And so these tend to be very sticky businesses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just uh, from, from my own personal experience, the company that I worked for uh, prior to coming to The Fool uh, was a Salesforce.com customer. And we used that software for customer support, marketing, uh, selling for financials. So if by chance Salesforce.com was offline for a day, our, our business would have grinded to a halt. We were 100% dependent on Salesforce.com just for day-to-day operations. So that. That just shows you how much power some of these SaaS companies can have over their customers.
0: There are some drawbacks though for investors in this space and some things that I think people need to be aware of when they're looking at SaaS companies. We talked about how we're building out kind of these nice, stable, consistent cash flows with the subscription model. What that does mean is that there's going to be less cash on hand when the first purchase is made.
1: Yeah, that's that's absolutely the case. I mean, you could you can imagine, say, a company was selling. Uh, a CD-ROM for $100, and under the SaaS model, they're selling it for, say, $8 a month. Um, From a revenue perspective, when they sold one user under the old model, they got that $100 up front. Under the new model, they can only book $8 in revenue per month. So, it does make their financial statements a little bit harder to, uh, to decipher, because the way that the accounting works is it masks a lot of the true profitability that these companies have, just because of the timing of the revenue. And another major risk is, um, is uh, for investors to watch is churn. You can imagine if somebody bought a product like 10, 20 years ago, they used it once, and then they abandoned it, well, the software company still kept all that money up front. Under the SaaS model, if somebody abandons a product after a, a month or two, then that company spent a lot of money acquiring the customer, and the, they didn't even come close to recouping their costs back.
0: Yeah, much of the SaaS model is kind of built into the expectation that once you acquire a customer, you keep this customer, and not only do you keep them at the current level that they're at for their subscription, you actually grow whatever their account value is, and that might be through added users or through new services being added to the suite of products that they're using. But it is not something that stays flat in the eye, in the eyes of most of these management companies.
1: Yeah, that for uh, for SaaS investors. Uh, one of the most critical um, metrics to look at is churn, and you want obviously churn to be as low as possible.
0: Why don't we talk about some of the other things that are worth looking at as an investor in this space? Um, I think that, for me, one of the struggles with SaaS businesses is that very often, it's a space that I don't know super well. So I think that this is a space where you can definitely enjoy some of those Peter Lynch style advantages in investing. What you know, you know, if you're in a space where highly technical software is very valuable and helps eliminate a lot of business friction, um, then you might have an advantage here. Because when I read these, you know, press releases or these company write ups from SaaS companies. They're often sounding, you know, like high-flying, amazing businesses that are going to change the world, and it can be a little difficult to kind of parse through. Okay, well, what is this company's actual standing in the market, and how much better is it than the existing competitors that are out there?
1: Yeah, that is something that that can be tough for investors to grasp their head around, if, especially if you're not actually uh, using the the software itself. So that that can be a difficulty with investing in the space is that you're if you're not exposed to the software like you would be as a user of say Facebook or Twitter or some mass consumer uh, a brand, it can be difficult to kind of figure out where the company stands in the market.
0: So that's why I think looking at some of these metrics is important. Why don't we talk about customer acquisition cost and some of the other things that play into what builds a sustainable and successful long-term SaaS company?
1: Sure. so there's a couple of metrics that are unique to the SaaS business model that are really important for investors to know. Uh, so the first one there is customer acquisition costs. And this is basically, how much money does a company have to spend on sales and marketing to acquire one new customer? So, the way you calculate this is you take the amount of money spent on sales and marketing uh, in one period, say a year, and you divide it by the number of new customers that are obtained in uh, in that same time period. So, really quickly, let's pretend that a company spent a million dollars on sales and marketing and they picked up a thousand new customers. Well, their customer acquisition cost would be $1,000 per customer. And as a rough guide, um, a, a good ca- customer acquisition cost number to, to aim for is you, you want about a 12 month payback period. So, if it costs you $1,000 to acquire a new customer, you want them to pull in $1,000 in revenue from, from that customer in about a year.
0: And you can look at customer value that way. You can also kind of look at things from a lifetime value perspective with these SaaS businesses.
1: Yeah. So the lifetime value is another absolutely critical number. And it's basically how much revenue are you going to pull in uh, from a customer over over their lifetime with your product? So the way that you calculate this is you figure out how much revenue the average customer or average uh, user is pulling in per year. And then you divide that by their churn rate. So again, let's say a customer is, say, $1,000 per year in revenue and every year you you lose about 10% of your customer base well 1000 divided by 10% is 10000 so the average lifetime value of any given customer would be about
0: $10,000 and to put together the two metrics we just talked about for you want your lifetime value to be higher than your acquisition cost that that is the way that eventually this software that you're offering is going to be profitable
1: yeah absolutely as long as the lifetime value of a customer exceeds its customer acquisition cost that's 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 a good thing, and, and as a general guideline, you want to see the lifetime value of a customer exceed about three times the customer acquisition cost. That that's a good metric for telling you that you have a, a good SaaS business.
0: Something else you'll see in looking at some prospectuses and uh, you know filings from these SaaS businesses is the idea of a dollar revenue retention rate and it is a mouthful as a metric but really it's kind of a simple calculation and it's something that anyone that follows restaurant stocks might be somewhat familiar with because it's very similar to a comps number that you'll see there.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's very similar to to same store sales and the idea is how much revenue are you pulling in from your existing customer base one year compared to the next. So calculating it is revenue at the start of the year and then you add in upselling you subtract, churn, and downgrades. And this this number is expressed as a percentage. So any number over 100 percent means that your existing customer base, you're, you're growing revenue within your existing customer base. And then if you add in new customers on top of that, that leads to that can lead to you know, explosive revenue growth.
0: And and I think that you have to focus on some of these metrics because by traditional valuation metrics and, and a lot of traditional financial analysis a lot of early-stage SaaS companies can look kind of ugly on their financial statements. A lot of them wind up losing a lot of money. And you need to see that down the road, maybe it's five years out, maybe it's 10 years out, there is a path to profitability and there is a stickiness with the existing user base uh, that will continue to grow.
1: Yeah, if you look at a lot of the SaaS companies that are on the market today, um, many of them, especially the smaller ones, are still posting... Um, losses, and that's because of kind of the revenue dynamic we talked before, where they're not pulling in as much up front. and a lot of them are also tech companies, so they're they're, they're giving out a generous amount of stock uh, option grants, which also subtracts from uh, from revenue. Um, so, looking at the numbers, the traditional numbers like earnings per share isn't necessarily the best way to look at these businesses.
0: But the reason Wall Street is willing to afford them uh, the ability to lose money for such a long period of time is, with this model at a certain customer count, you are basically making pure money, right? You know, There's some additional usage fees and costs that come with adding those customers on, but really, uh, you've laid out all these costs with infrastructure and in building out your services, and it's just a matter of spreading that over enough customers and enough account usage to make the numbers work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. A- a- after a certain point, um, after a certain si- size, every new custom that you add is is it's not pure profit, but it's pretty darn close. So these businesses scale beautifully where they go from very, very low profit margins to very, very high profit margins uh, very quickly.
0: One of the things that Lewis asked in his question that I want to get back to is Do you see SaaS as a market sector with many subsector winners or a few giant winners taking all? And I think that's a very natural question when you look at the players in this space, right? You have the big companies like Microsoft, Adobe, Salesforce, IBM, Oracle, they're all playing there. And anytime you look at a space where you have those big tech giants, it's easy to say. Well, they could just hop in and take everything. You know, they could eat everyone's lunch if they wanted to. So, so when you look at this, Brian, you know, how do you approach that, and how do you kind of look at what segments of the market might be clear from you know being scooped up by big tech?
1: Yeah, that, that is something that um, I, I do think about. But um, my response to that would be, in, in general, the switch from traditional model to SaaS is ongoing, and so the the whole SaaS pie, if you will. Is is expanding very quickly from year to year, so it's not necessarily a winner take all market um, yet. Uh, And there's also a ton of room for kind of niche niche applications for these businesses. I mean, one of the companies that we touched upon a few weeks ago when I was on the show was Blackline, and they kind of they kind of have targeted this niche of real time accounting software, which is something that not many other companies are uh, are going after. So there is plenty of room. I think for smaller place, smaller players that take a more niche of focus to succeed.
0: The way that I look at this space is, um, you can go with some of the big folks and have exposure to uh, both the cloud tailwinds and software as a service tailwinds, or you can go and look at kind of mid and small cap companies. And a lot of the names that we've discussed on this show together before, you know, whether it's Shopify, Paylocity, uh, Atfolio. I mean, a lot of those companies operate in spaces that are or were when they started a little too small for these tech companies to get into, because for them to lay out the resources, they weren't going to move the needle enough uh, for it to make sense for them as a business.
1: Yeah, that's and, and that's exactly the way that I look at it too. I mean, I, I think there's room for the big guys, the, the middle guys, and the small guys in anybody's portfolio that's interested in this. And I, I personally invest in, in companies that are uh, you know small, mid, and large cap.
0: All right. Why don't we talk about a few companies that are on your radar right now or ones that you currently own that you like?
1: Sure. Uh, so I've talked about a couple of them on, on the show before, but um, if, if we go with a, a big company, uh, I think most people know who Adobe is. They make their creative suite of products, um, like Acrobat and uh, and they're kind of the the premier name in uh, photo and video editing. Um, so a couple of years ago, they decided to transition their entire business from a licensed software model to a SaaS model. And while that transition period was was a little bit rocky just because of what happens to your revenue when you do that, um, they are now, the majority of their, their sales are subscription-based, and their business has just been on fire uh, for the last couple of years. Revenue and profits are growing by uh, you know 20% plus. So that's a business that I own and, and like a lot.
0: Yeah, it's nice to see a big legacy player make the pivot to this space and, and make it what seems to be very well. What are some smaller names or, or kind of companies that have come into the world as pure play SaaS companies that you like?
1: Sure. Um, so, a couple of the ones that uh, I talked about previously was uh, Blackline. Their niche is kind of uh, disrupting the way that accounting is done. So, they're going for real time accounting uh, versus the batch model. And what I really like about them is there's, there's very little competition in, in their space and, and they're a leader. Uh, Another one I talked about before in this, in the show was uh, at Folio and they kind of focused on real estate and legal, like small legal businesses, small real estate businesses. So those are super niche markets that they can, they can uh, establish dominance in and they add more niche markets over time so they can grow. Uh, HubSpot is a company that is transitioning to an inbound marketing, which is when you have a blog or, uh, you, you create content that consumers want to reach that, uh, helps you grow your brand. Uh, that's a company that I like a lot. And then one of uh listeners are probably very familiar with is, um, is Shopify. They, they help, uh, businesses, uh, sell products basically online with, and they create tools that make payment processing, uh, very easy.
0: Well, thank you very much for giving me that rundown, Brian. That was that was a bit of a mouthful there. I think to wrap all of this conversation, why don't we hit a couple of risks and things that people should keep in mind? We gave that metrics rundown before. I think to get a little bit less technical, you know, we talked about how a lot of these companies are high growth and very often not profitable because they are kind of so early on in building out their customer base. Um, That can put people in a spot where they're buying stocks that are really bought up and are at pretty rich valuations.
1: Yeah, I mean, the SaaS businesses in general have been on fire over the last couple of years. So I've just I've seen price to sales ratios for almost every business that I follow uh, just keep expanding and expanding and expanding over time. So there is the there is the risk that at some point investors are paying way too high of a price for these businesses. Um, so, th- that's a risk for investors right now. Um, there's other ones too, like um, so many companies are getting into the SaaS space that competition in, in a lot of these uh, is really starting to, uh, to um, increase. So, um, a couple of companies that I like a lot in the space are uh, PayLocity and Paycom Software, and they kind of focus on payroll processing. Well, that, that, that market is big and growing, but it's also becoming int- intensely competitive. Um, so that's another risk for investors to watch. And then finally, the thing that um, I'm going to focus my time and attention on is really looking at churn. The SaaS business model only works if you get a customer and keep them for as long as possible. So if competition comes in or the company doesn't innovate fast enough and churn starts to increase, that that could lead to uh, re- revenue not growing as quickly and investors can really get burned.
0: Yeah, you can almost think of SaaS companies as gym memberships, right? You, you, you want to be able to sell gym memberships and have people just continue to pay you to use them.
1: That's exactly right. That's a great <laughs> analogy.
0: I guess the, the where it falls short is that there's an unlimited number of memberships at this gym. Space doesn't yeah. matter.
1: <laughs> That's right. There's a lot more uh, potential for profit expansion with SaaS.
0: <laughs> well, uh, thank you for hopping on, Brian. Anything else before I let you go today?
1: No, I think we covered it pretty
0: good. Alright, and thank you to David Gardner for reading the question so that I did not have to. He had me on his Rule Breaker podcast last week to run through this a little bit and tee it up. Listeners, if you don't listen to his show, you absolutely should be. Otherwise, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions, or if you want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or you can tweet us at MF Industry focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or check out The Fool's family of shows over at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for all his work behind the glass. For Brian Feroldi, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!